iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll look at Manchester United's win over Spurs at Old Trafford. Is this kind of performance the reason Eric Ten Hag was brought to the club? We'll also look ahead to their game against Chelsea at the weekend and ponder why Antonio Conte says Spurs aren't good enough against teams at the highest level. We'll also look at some of the other big wins in midweek. Victories for Southampton, Crystal Palace and Liverpool. We will also get an update on the European Super League and pick our contenders for Gareth Southgate's England World Cup squad. This is the game. Hello again, welcome back to the game podcast. I'm Hugh Wissencroft alongside Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson on this Thursday morning. Gentlemen, how are we? Very good, Very Hugh, well. thank you. Probably not as good as you though. Big win. Must be buzzing. My Man United friends. Not even just my Man United friends, Man United and Liverpool friends this morning have got on to me. All right, because one of them shared a clip of the Jamie Carragher saying Martinez at the heart of of Man United's defence. You know, he's too short. He's five foot nine. You know, I I don't want to judge him too early. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry, but it, it, we are not yet into who's laughing now territory, guys. Man United have had a couple of good games. I saw them concede six the other week. I'm about 35 <laughs> shots against the team from Cyprus oh, and, chilly bugger, and scoring <laughs> in the 95th minute. What consistency is key? And if it continues over a long period of time, I will change my tune. All I'm saying is I'm keeping my feet on the floor. I will not get carried away because when I watch Manchester United, I see a team that's beginning to put something together but in key areas and key positions, they're still lacking something. That being said, I think it probably was Manchester United's best performance for some time. Uh, many of the fans, not me, starting to sense something brewing at Old Trafford as they strolled to victory over Tottenham Hotspur. It ended up 2-0 in a game in which they had 28 shots and generally held the likes of Harry Kane and Hyung min Son at arm's length. Harry Winter in the Times today saying, this is why United brought in Eric Ten Hag. This was the type of stylish, confident performance and thoroughly deserved victory that the club's hierarchy believed Ten Hag would mastermind with his attacking philosophy and inspiring man management. What did you make of it then, Gregor? Their best performance in years? Uh, I haven't got that far to say in maybe a year uh, that I can remember. Absolutely somewhere between your your thoughts there and, and Henry's. I think like you're right. It's not that long ago they conceded six. And I think there's probably still a big dip in, in the locker from this group of players. But I would also say that you're seeing definite signs of progress under Ten Hag. And it was a really, really dominant performance. The way that they kind of poured bodies forward. Yes, Spurs sat back, but there were overloads down the flanks, quick switches of play. What was really important as well, I think, was how much on the how on the front foot the 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 kind of supported players were, the defensive players. The, the first goal comes from Martinez actually winning a header 
where Son kind of saw him coming and backed out. He kind of, it was almost a 50-50, but Son made it a 60-40 in his favour. And he he went one the header and he broke and scored. He's always on the front foot. That's one of his biggest strengths. And I'd say Varane too. Varane was kind of breaking the lines with passes. He's starting to look like the, the player that we know he can be. Um, and Bruno, Bruno, when he plays with that energy, is is one of the best players in the league. So, absolutely, very very positive performance. But I'm with you. I wouldn't get too carried away just yet. I don't think Eric Ten Hag will mind. You know, us being calm and measured. I think this season has shown that United aren't that superstar team. They had that great run, then get thrashed by City. But I think the response has been really good to that. And I think this game showed what you guys have mentioned that. There are signs of progress. I wanted to highlight the midfield pairing of Casemiro and Fred. When you think back to that run of four games, McTominay and Eriksen were playing in that role. Everyone was talking about Eriksen. Oh, he's brilliant in that deep line role, playing balls. You now have a, two players, Brazilian, know each other quite well, presumably playing alongside each other. But Fred was playing far more advanced than he has done in his United career, which is something that in an interview we um, carried in the Times, he talked about wanting to do more of a kind of number eight rather than a number six pushing more further forward and it shows kind of in the average position maps he's far more advanced Casemiro is almost sitting and you've kind of got a like 4-1-4-1 formation so again that kind of leads into Gregor's point about them being more front foot more more positive and I think that's just really interesting that you've got a manager who had one tactical set up in playing McTominay and Ericsson that worked worked for four games they had a good little run they played against City and it didn't work they got picked apart and I think that area of the pitch was a problem He's, he's looked at it, he's changed it, and this was another positive positive aspect. So he's getting a lot out of his squad, some players that have been criticised for a long time, and that's a positive for United and Ten Hag. I, I mean, I, I admired the way that Fred managed to get through a, a midfield that essentially had three holding midfielders in it. Of well, Tottenham. exactly, yeah. Um, but he's one of those players, isn't he? I think he's the one that you leave at the end of the list, right? He's the last player on the playground that gets picked. All the defenders went, whoa, 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 this player's dangerous, pick them up, and then suddenly Fred ghosts in and no one's got them. I mean... Getting into the penalty area for Fred is something that he hasn't done a lot of the time at Manchester United, which he seems to, I guess, have been given that freedom by Eric Ten Hag. And it was just interesting that, of course, the first goal came from his deflected shot. The second one came from his swing and a miss, exactly. uh, which fell but to Bruno in, but Fernandes. He's, but he's in there and he's up there. Yeah. And it's that thing of Gregor talking about as well. Players in and around the box. I mean, it's almost a cliche, isn't it? But they were getting fullbacks forward. Luke Shaw was getting on, overlapping on one side. Dallow was getting up and linking play on the right. And then you had attackers. Yes, it's helped by playing against the Tottenham team that were willing to sit back and try and counter-attack. But it's a positive for United at home that they're taking the game to teams. And it's not the first time they've done it. They did it against Liverpool. They tried to do it against Arsenal. Got a little bit lucky against Arsenal. But, you know, this this is a positive for United that they're doing it in, in big games at Old Trafford, which is something they hadn't done for a while. I'd say it was also worth pointing Anthony as well. He's kind of... One of those players, such a low centre of gravity, he can kind of swivel around. There was one where he spun Perisic on the on the on the byline halfway line and then drove him field. Loads of little touches forward all the time. All his balls always really close to him, and you know, dangerous with the sh- shots from outside the box yeah. at the post in the first half. He's starting to grow. I think Sancho's the only one really. You're still well, not really. Hmm. I, I was I was from. genuinely going to pick up on exactly the same point because you saw how you know I mentioned Fred swing and a miss, but the ball gets played into the area that that. Fred and, and Bruno Fernandes were in just because Anthony had that drive to go at a couple of players and when the pass was able to be played, he played it. And you watch Jaden Sancho and, you know, I've said this since he came to Manchester United, he doesn't have the build of a Premier League winger. Uh, and 
that power, that first 10 yards for a Premier League winger is so important. It is the difference between getting into great goal-scoring opportunities and opportunities to uh, assist players and not in the Premier League. And I watch him and I'm like, oh, an inside you know, a number 10 maybe who can create. He, he To be fair to Jaden Sancho, he's great at picking out a pass in and around the edge of the box. But it's that, you know, when you pick it up five yards inside your own half and you're a Premier League winger, we see so many of them. Son and Zaha, you know, these players that can just, you know, even Brennan Johnson's got the ability to pick up the ball and, and carry it, which is what you need to do if you're a, a wide player in the Premier League. You need to have that that power, that injection, and I just don't see it from Jaden Sancho with his build at the moment. That's nothing that he can really do about that other than hit the gym. Yeah, I wonder though, like with Sancho in comparison to Gregor's point about Anthony, who, by the way, if he masters the Aryan Robin impression that he's trying to do, cutting in off the right wing and curling mm. shots with that left foot, United will be in for some fun seasons. You know, Ant- Anthony's come in kind of uninhibited by previous seasons, previous pressures, previous managers. He's the new boy. He scored on his debut. He's got that confidence. Maybe that's a big part of the Sancho issue. It's a lack of confidence. Yeah, I think so. You know, it, that was going through my mind when you were saying that because the, I, I think we have seen him be explosive. I know, I know, it's a different. Well, we talk about the Premier League being different, a different landscape, but I think he can be that explosive player. I just don't think. I think part of it is confidence and mm. the team he's been playing in. So, you know, he's the one player that still you want you want to see more from, but. There are other players that are definitely stepping up to the levels that you expect from them, and, and that's you know that's why we're seeing Manchester United improving. Yeah, I think I'd just say on Sancho, thinking about that confidence point, if we think about Ten Hag and what we talked about with Fred and bringing more out of other players, Luke Shaw said this week that Ten Hag's not a manager who'll kind of accept lowering your standards. You need to lift it. All those things marry together, as well as Ten Hag's time at Ajax, bringing some of those players through, getting a lot out of them. That, in long term, suggests that we will hopefully see the best out of Jaden Sancho at some point under Eric Ten Hag. I'm going to take you back into my WhatsApp group for a second. I wasn't even <laughs> going to I wasn't even going to mention this, okay? This wasn't even on my notes. But I guess we have to. With a minute to go in the game, the great Cristiano Ronaldo decides that he is off down the tunnel, not been brought on obviously in the game. I wouldn't call it a strop, but obviously it's a it's a sign. Look at me. It is a big sign, isn't it? And I, I'm, I, I personally think it's sort of unacceptable because he's again. I've said this about him before, but he's a grown man. He's a very experienced player. He's been in the game a long time. The team's just won. You know, it's all good throwing a strop. You haven't come on. The team's not playing well. It played better than it has in a long, long time. And a team player is surely at least happy about that for the team. Um, the headlines were all about him because of it. I think it's a huge distraction. Manchester United don't need it. His reputation doesn't need it either. I don't know why he's doing it. But clearly, he's going to be gone in January, probably faster than the summer. But in my WhatsApp group, there was a big debate over whose fault it was. I blamed Ronaldo and said he needs to be able to control himself. My mates blame the club for putting him in that situation, keeping hold of him, probably knowing in their heart of hearts that he wasn't going to play. I blame his agent, George Mendes. I mean, I think Roy Keane's made this point about if he was so desperate and desperate and had a prerequisite of have to play in the Champions League, why wasn't that part of his contract that United kind of had to, you know, accept a cut price deal or that he'd look for a move defined in his contract that they would find him something else? Because that was part of the problem in the summer. You get the impression that Ten Hag is happy enough to have him around as part of the squad in that he's the ultimate you know, luxury squad player. But last night proved what I think a lot of United fans have said for a long time. Even under Solskjaer with Ronaldo, yes, he scored goals, but as a team, 
did they work as well? That's highly debatable, I would say. The point you make, you as a Manchester United fan and as a journalist, is that this is a PR game now for Ronaldo in terms of his reputation as a player on the global stage, but also as a former Manchester United legend. This is what it's about now. And this was, I would say, his first major wrong move in that even the di most diehard United fans would have looked at that and gone, that's poor, that's really poor. Yeah, I, I can understand this frustration. I mean, it, look, I, I, <laughs> it, goes, <laughs> it goes without saying, I'm not Cristiano Ronaldo. I've walked down the tunnel when I was taken off once and like, you can be really, really pissed off in moments. And you can only, you know, it's hard to fathom what it must be like for Cristiano Ronaldo, probably one of the top five players ever of all time, mm. to be seeing the end of his career sort of wither like this and not being important anymore. It must be hard for someone with, of an e with an ego of that size as well. It must be difficult for him. So I understand that. But you're right, it kind of always trying to, sh to shine the light back onto him whether he's doing it absolutely intentionally or whether it's just, you know, a byproduct of what he's doing, it's not good. Even when he came off against Newcastle, he just shook his head for about 15 minutes on the bench, like just constantly, camera's always going to be panning to him. So it is, it, you do almost think you're better just not talking about it now because Manchester United did a lot of positive things. It's not that all, that, all that often that you can, you can, you know, speak about them in this way after a game. Ronaldo just kind of leaves a little cloud over it at the end. I think we should probably just move on. <laughs> Okay, I will then move on. <laughs> Sorry, I found like it was the boss there. No, 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 no. Listen, there's a big game on the horizon, so we might as well discuss that instead of Cristiano Ronaldo. Chelsea against Manchester United at Stamford Bridge this weekend in the Premier League. How big is it for the two managers, Graham Potter, who had a goalless draw last time out, and for Eric Ten Hag as well? Tom, what do you think? I think it's pretty big for both managers for me not that I'm putting pressure back on Eric Ten Hag but given that I gave him the big the big up for the wins against Arsenal Liverpool and now Tottenham and then that kind of defeat against City it'll be interesting to see where this lands in terms of their performance we've talked about some of those tactical tweaks in the midfield which will he go for will he go more defensive because you know by all accounts I would say Chelsea's midfield particularly with like Mason Mount have got more threat in there than Tottenham's would is going to have so do you want Casemiro and McTominay do you want Casemiro and Fred do you want to try and get Ericsson in there because chances are Chelsea would be a bit more attacking than Tottenham are going to be so United might want to look to play on the counter so it'll be interesting to see how he melds those two because I think that's what I've been fascinating with with Ten Hag is that he's shown lot, a couple of different cards in terms of how he wants to play and the players he wants to use and how he wants to use them I'll be interested to see what version of Man Ten Hag's Manchester United comes out in this game and I'd say that for him it's a little bit more of a kind of test whereas Potter's still early in his Chelsea ring. Uh, what I find interesting is I think Chelsea still have that comfort in possession that they had under Tuchel the players you know these short sharp passes I still think they look quite comfortable doing that even if at times they don't create the chances to go with it I don't know if Man United are going to go to Stamford Bridge and sort of out possession Chelsea yeah so it might be another counter-attack performance might see Ronaldo on the bench if he's not dropped completely mm. and then we might all be saying if Manchester United win by playing on the counter a bit like they did against Arsenal oh it's Solskjaer ball back mm -hmm. you know because I don't see that even though I can see that they're trying to get that possession in, into their game and, and play attacking football based on you know passing through the press and stuff like that I can see what Manchester United are trying to do I don't think they are as refined at it as the best clubs in football just yet, even though it works in small periods. So, and I think Chelsea are one of the better sides at sort of um, suffocating the opposition. So I wonder if they will just be more direct, more on the counter-attack. Marcus Rashford might even score 
needs 15 <laughs> shots, but he might even get one of them in the back of the net this time around. That's how I probably see it going. I, I don't know if I can really call a winner at this point in time because I think they're very evenly Sounds matched Sounds like teams. you're calling a nil-nil here, to be honest. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I do think there'll be goals, but I don't think it's going to be three all, but I do think they'll probably both score. But I wonder whether it'll just be that counter-attacking chance late on, a miscue in the Chelsea defence that maybe is the difference or will it be a sort of Mason Mount, a, a Bamiyang special moment that, that wins it for Chelsea? I'm not sure. What do you think? Well, Chelsea's sort of defensive resolve on the Potter has been being really impressive one thing that was kind of struck me last night actually was just you know Chelsea had a a nil-nil against Brentford but although Potter's had a positive start it's not been like box office yeah yeah. I just wonder how like how long that that can be acceptable Mm. look I'm not saying anything about Graham Potter and his future at Chelsea or anything ridiculous like that I'm just saying that Chelsea have always been like blockbuster. No, they haven't. They have. I knew you were going to say that. Even if they've not been on the pitch, they have been in the dugout or they have been in the in, the, in front of the TV camera afterwards. Okay. And at the moment, they are bland. If they're not winning and scoring goals, they're pretty bland. That's all I'm saying. It just struck me last night. Chelsea nil nil. Graham Potter mm. saying, you know what? We played quite well. Usually that they are. But usually, <laughs> but usually they are bland and they win. You know, they did under Thomas Tuchel and they got to the and Champions they probably League will final. Under they, they were a team that sort of. You know, they meticulously controlled matches, went one up, second half, first 15 minutes, might get the second, see the game out. You know, they they weren't always, you know, a a sexy team, to put it that way. And I think historically they maybe have become accustomed to that because they've been successful with a couple of managers who didn't really have that wow factor in terms of their football, but it led to a lot of success for Chelsea. Maybe their fans are a little bit more accommodating given that they've seen it work before I think maybe maybe yeah sorry I'm just I, it just struck me last night as well you know you saw him having Graham Potter having like sharing questions with Thomas Frank and the touchline you know interview, interviewing each other afterwards he's just so mild mannered and like you know performance bits of performance I like clean sheet we're really pleased with it's just like it's all so polite and nice and Chelsea have been this ruthless winning machine and as you say yeah they might not have always been excited on the pitch but they'll have an angry German guy come out afterwards and go, no, we're not happy with this, we're here to win. Or they'll have Mourinho throwing barbs around. Now they've got Graham Potter just being really nice and placid. I just, It just struck me this is a massive change for Chelsea. I think that in isolation is true, but then you think about some of the Champions League performances, that home win against AC Milan, they, you know, they were flying forward in that in that win, you know, playing really attacking football. Reese James is obviously a big miss in terms of his what he offers at right wing-back. I think you do make an interesting point, though, relating to this, us previewing the United game and some of the things we've talked about in terms of Ten Hag's tactics. I think the type of game we get might be dictated by Potter, as in they're the home team, how he sets up and whether he kind of goes to dominate possession, strangle the game, whether he plays a little bit more expansive, which might allow United to counter-attack. You can imagine Ten Hag kind of being sat there thinking, which way is he going to go? How should I approach this? And they might have to go, you know, Ten Hag will be on the pitch. Right, right, lads, plan A, plan A, press, they're sitting back, go for the Tottenham approach. Or he'll be sat there going, oh, no, 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 okay, counter, Marcus, get ready, get on your bike. I think he might dictate it, Graham Potter, and that'll be the decide the game we see. Oh, we do need to talk about another team that haven't really had that wow factor either of late. Um, he teed you up for this, didn't he, old Gregor? This is a perfect one-two. He's rolled it across <laughs> the box for Hugh to tap in some Tottenham hate. Gone. Often called the Italian Graham Potter, Antonio Conte. <laughs> um, of course, Tottenham beaten 2-0 by Manchester United, which we've been discussing. Conte after the game saying, I have to be honest, and first of all, with my players, this was not the first time for us this season. The table's good. But every time we play a high-level game, we struggle. Against Chelsea, they dominated the game. At Arsenal, we lost. And today, we lost. 
even Antonio Conte can't take Conte ball, apparently. So what do Tottenham do next? I mean, that's an interesting concession, isn't it, by Conte to make that point. I think probably from you know the whole general narrative around Tottenham season so far, it's it's an honest assessment. They weren't great, were they? That was one of the poorest performances I've seen for a long time. Again, with my kind of Conte defence hat on in terms of defending Tottenham season as well, no Richarlison and no Kulusevski. We've talked before about how important Kulusevski is. We were then talking in the frame of them having, okay, these three forwards who would counter-attack together as a unit, Richarlison, Son, Kane, and at least that offered them something. You then had last night where you've got Kane and Son kind of on their own, and the few chances on the counter-attack they had, I think there was one where it was Bentoncourt and Perisic were the other two players. Bentoncourt out on the right, Perisic is at the back post screaming for the ball, and you're like, oh, this is not... This is not the ideal setup that you'd want. These are not the players that you would want in those positions. And I think, again, I was looking at the stats um, from up to this morning and that, you know, married up in the average position maps. Kane and Son were kind of in a central area, very close to each other in terms of the touches they'd had and the game involvement. And then the, other, the only other two players whose average position was in the United half or anywhere near the halfway line were Benton Kerr and Perisic. So in terms of that attacking threat, if you're going to play Conte ball on the counter, you're going to struggle. So I think that is something that has to be made made a um, pretty big part of the conversation around Tottenham struggles is missing Richarlison and Kulusevski. Yeah, he sounded quite despondent actually. It's like you need to arrive with a better. A bit, speaking about bravery, really, they have to keep the ball better when they when they win it back. Otherwise, they're just chasing shadows and they're sitting deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know, he had a real set to with Bentoncourt just before half time. They were screaming at each other on the pitch, mm. and. I think that was because he just put another wayward pass. They, they gifted possession back to Man United too often. Man United pressed well, but they have to be better when they win the ball back. Um, you know, and that f- facilitates more of the kind of type of counters. It allows them to get up the pitch more. And if they don't do that, then it's hard to really soak up pressure in the way that they did yeah. for 90 minutes. And, you know, it sometimes, you know, I, w- I watched the Brighton game and I was at the Brighton game and it, Brighton dominated. Brighton had loads and loads of loads of the ball, loads of the ball around the box. The difference is they defended the box a little bit better. They weren't playing against Manchester United either, and they scored. They they can score on the break. That's the thing. If they score on the break, then the game changes. Hmm. But when they don't, and they're soaking up pressure against some of the better teams, and the way he's, you know, that's what he said. He's talking about when they're playing the best teams. He's just underlining the point that they're still a fair bit behind these teams, and like they've faced twenty-eight shots, twenty-two against Arsenal. Uh, 16 against Chelsea as well so that's a lot and like ex- expected goals of 5.49 in those three games so like against so they really are trying to soak up too much <laughs> too much of the play too too much far sitting far too deep against these teams and when they win the, win the ball back they can't keep it yeah and you've said it on a previous show recently Kulosevsky is the pl- one player who can do that who can take a touch take a touch away from someone else and go right let's let's calm it down bring help bring players up the pitch help them get into the opposition's half. And that's when you can then start to not dominate possession, but keep the ball a bit more. You know, take some of the pressure off the defence, take some pressure off Hugo Lloris having to make saves. And I would, again, defending Conte and defending Tottenham this season, I think obviously he is such a superstar manager. And they had, when, when players are fully fit, they have a superstar forward line. But you look at the kind of squad last night, and a lot has been made recently about, you know, not using fringe players and stuff. And you kind of look at that game and be like, okay, under pressure backs to the wall, away from home, losing the game. And, you know, you're bringing on Sessignon, Skip, Jed Spence, Mora, all in the last 10 minutes. I kind of agree with him. Like, that, You know, those players aren't necessarily going to change the game for you. So 
I do defend that idea as well that you know he's got this big squad to use that can be competing with Manchester United in terms of strength and depth. But I don't think that's true either. I'm not. I'm not saying that accounts for the way they're playing. I think he might need to do something between now and the World Cup if he wants to pick up some points with those injuries. But I also think that after the World Cup, he's going to be looking to spend some money. Yeah. One thing a lot of people pointed to is that those changes, were, I think, were made in the 80th minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what I said, yeah. yeah all so all in the last 10 minutes, 82, 89, you know, and it's kind of... You know, they were games gone substitutions. Yeah, exactly. They were, they but, were, it, but it's to make that point, isn't it, that I'm, you know, this is what I've got to work with. You want me to bring Oliver Skip on? You know, it's solid, solid player, but in the kind of Scott McTominay squad player, he'll, he'll work really hard. You know, but needs to improve if he's going to be a Champions League player, isn't he? And that's what Conte wants to work with. He wants to work with players at the top. And they're, they are missing that creative control in midfield. Tom Roddy said it before about thinking about Conte teams, thinking about his Chelsea team. They had Cesc Fabregas. Tottenham don't have a Cesc Fabregas. I'll call it now. Sunday afternoon, White Hart Lane, Spurs versus Newcastle. Probably going to be one of the most fun games of the weekend, okay? I can, I'm can. i going to tell you now. Fun games. Boring Conte it, against Eddie Howe's defensive might of Newcastle. It's it won't nil, be boring. Nil written all over it. It will not be boring, okay? I can promise you that. It won't be boring. We'll react to that. Of course, we will on Monday. Uh, up next, we'll whisk through some of the other games uh, in midweek. A big win for Southampton. We'll talk Crystal Palace, West Ham as well. A little bit later on, we'll get an update on the European Super League and we'll look ahead to Gareth Southgate's 55 possibly 55-man England Provisional World Cup squad. Stay with us. Okay, let's take a look at what else happened in midweek in the Premier League, and it was a massive win for Southampton. They beat Bournemouth 1-0 thanks to a Che Adams header. It was their first victory in six games, and it eased some of the pressure on their manager, Ralph Hasenhuttle. Southampton, this is a fun fact, have become the 20th and final team to keep a clean sheet in the Premier League this season. In fact, it was their first clean sheet since April when they faced Arsenal. 17 games in all in the Premier League since they last kept a clean sheet. But Hasenhutl's been speaking about the importance of patience after this result. And I think that is an important message for everyone concerned with Southampton and one of the reasons probably why he's kept his job for so long. Um, they made 10 signings in the summer, many of them very young and inexperienced. So I, I wanted to ask you guys whether patience will continue to be the message going forward. If not, well then for how long? Well, we discussed only recently, didn't we, about his position and I said on this podcast that I thought if getting to the World Cup they were in and around the bottom then they might start thinking about it. But Last night's game completely changed my mind, not just because of the result, but because of the manner of the performance and the reaction afterwards. You saw the players all together kind of doing that kind of celebration in front of the away fans. That is clearly a team and a squad that are playing for their manager, I think. And that is impressive in the modern day era when you've been at a club as long as Hasenhutl has. I think, you know, I mean, God loves Southampton. I mean, they're playing away against the kind of informed team. Everyone's new favourite team, Gary O'Neill's Bournemouth, aren't they? Great fun. <laughs> And they get a 1-0 away win with like an early goal and then a backs-to-the-wall dogged defensive display, which is like the most un-Southampton, Hootle thing you can think of. But, I mean, that all goes to show, as you say, Hugh, with all the kind of signings, that he's still got a good command of that squad and has got a good command of how to win games and get points. So I imagine that that patience will continue if they keep progressing like this, keep bringing in young players, keep fitting the kind of club ideology, what they want to do. I can only imagine he says. And I, I find them fascinating as a club in terms of operating in the modern era when you think about how clubs, how often clubs change managers and change change tactics and aspire to be something that perhaps isn't that suitable to in a business sense or in a footballing sense. I think they're, in lots of ways, 
there can't be a breath of fresh air because he's been doing it for so long but it is still incredibly um refreshing to see when you're looking at all the other clubs that are chopping and changing he is the the premier league's lazarus isn't he i yeah. mean he keeps he keeps finding a result when he really needs it you know we talk about set but we talk about some of the setbacks man united have overcome this season you talk about the number of setbacks he's overcome in his southampton career mm. it's pretty remarkable and he's not over, he's not he's not out of the woods yet but he's, he does always find a result when it's when he needs it and you know, all the noises, I said the other week, all the noises are that, you, you know, some relationships are broken down with players. But as Tom said, the evidence there the other night was that, you know, they look look like they're, if they're not playing for him, they're still still giving it 100%. And that bodes well for the future. I think, you know, he actually, pre- they, they've lost, I think Bella Cotcher has been their, their best best signing, in fact, mm. of the of the summer. And he, he's he's out with a shoulder injury and, and he praised uh, Coletta Carr who came in and and put in even one really important block on uh, from Philip Bill, Philip Billing shot, and he's he, he's quite an interesting signing. In fact, he's twenty six Croatian international, signed from Marseille for eight million. I think Liverpool in January twenty twenty one tried to sign him for twenty three million, and it kind of fell through because uh, Marseille didn't have enough time to to sign a replacement. You know, Hassan Hassan talked about his leadership. He's twenty six and in a very young team, and I think he's kind of evidence of. The kind of signings that sometimes they can really come off for Southampton. They can step up. He's got a good pedigree. He's played in the Champions League for Red Bull Salzburg. Came from Marseille, Croatian international. So you know, with they lose Belakotcha, he's still coming. So there's some of their signings are not going to work, yeah. but some are. And I think you know he's someone who I think there's there's potential for this. Their, their their squad has a look of, of like my Sunderland team first season. Like you haven't got any money to spend on FIFA and you're just <laughs> you're just collecting players wherever you can find them. You end up getting loads of under 23s on loan from like a big Premier League club and players from Scotland that are quite cheap. And, and it does, honestly, you look at the lineup and you're just like, what is, what is this team designed to do? Ward Prowse and Maitland-Niles in the middle, Aribo and El Yanusi either side. You've got Adam, Adam Armstrong, Che Adams, Coletta Sarsalisu, Walker Peters, Perro, and then Bazunu in goal. I mean, it's like, it is like the replacements. It's like they've just been collected from all over the world, whoever you can get your hands on. And he's, as a manager, got to get the best out of them, including, I mean, so many players sort of under the age of 23, not vastly experienced. What I respect about what he does at Southampton, what he I've been watching their games, all the defeats, all of the perceived bad performances. There is no real change. There's no band-aid over this team. They are, they are exposed. But in a coaching sense, I think it's important that, hold on, you've brought good players in from good clubs who have good pedigree. Your job is to develop them into very good professional players, not say you're inexperienced. So what I'm going to do is play five at the back and, you know, try and take care of you and not let you play your natural games. And I think it is important that he's, and I know the results are ultimately going to be the difference between staying up, going down, whether he stays in a job or not. But at this point in time, continue to try and make them better players and keep your same style of football, keep the same aspirations in terms of level. I think that is important for what Southampton are going to do in the long run because there's no point having this strategy and then saying, but by the way, we're going to play really negative football as much as we can. What's the point? Yeah, and you wonder why whether that's part of the thinking, whether these 9-0 defeats and kind of flirting with relegation places, they go, well, this guy can, A, as Gregor says, can get results and B, will work with what we want to do in terms of the ideology. 
I was listening to you talk there, Hugh, about the kind of players and Gregor, you talking about Bella Kochap and all these young players they brought in. Think about in the summer when they've maybe looked at the fact that they lost players like Vestergaard. You had Ben Mee and James Tarkovsky, two hugely experienced central defenders in the Premier League who would have fitted that kind of idea of what you said, Hugh. Oh, we're a bit inexperienced. Let's bring in one of these guys. You don't get the sense that they were ever even thinking about it and maybe they wouldn't have been able to compete with the wages that Everton offered for Tarkovsky, for example. But instead, they go and sign Bella Kochap, a young up-and-coming, is he 20, I think? Mm. In, you know, from the German league. That's the model and Hassan Hootl's happy to work with that. And I, that's why I think it's so refreshing. He's also someone who has uh, possibly waned a little bit more recently, but he's had probably more control over the club than any other manager in the Premier League. He wrote a playbook that's that's kind of like sent out to every youth youth coach and academy coach in the in the club about the way that Southampton play. And so, like you know, his 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 footprint, his his, his kind of authority is stamped all over that football club. So it's a big decision to let him to let him move on. Um, the thing that's interests me with all the under pressure managers is. The World Cup in a few weeks. It's like you you could be like a zombie club for weeks and weeks on end if you've got you know how many changes might we see during that period when there's no football happening. It's interesting to me. I think it's it's such a huge kind of a new landmark in this middle of the season, smack bang in the middle of the season, that clubs are going to be quite brave. In fact, if they're you know they're hovering around the bottom looking pretty dodgy, you know, for the for the remainder of the season, just to stick with it just to be a zombie club for that, that period of time and kind of hope that it all comes together when they come back because I, it's it's that's going to be brave, I think. Firstly, I think we're going to start seeing from here on out some pretty odd results and some pretty odd teams put out as players going to the World Cup start having conversations with their managers over game time, start pulling out a 50-50 challenges, etc., etc. Um, but also, of course, this Southampton squad many of them will not be going to the World Cup. And so, you you know, after you send them off for a, you know, a week in Dubai or whatnot, you're going to have a solid three and a half weeks probably before football returns uh, where you can get on the training ground and, and, you know, have a good feeling and try and, you know, get them to a point where they're ready to go in those games immediately after the break where lots of the bigger clubs are going to have their players returning in, in you know, various stages um, of both fitness and, of course, time frame. So it's going to be interesting. Um, but I did want to ask you finally whether you think Southampton will still be in a relegation battle. Ever or just this about. season. <laughs> this season. Uh, yes, I think they will because they will. That's why I kind of said slightly condescendingly, God love them, because they will now maybe go and lose a game 4-1 or yeah. something. That, But that's the price you pay for having an inexperienced side. And there were times like Bournemouth played quite well last night and kind of looked pretty dominant at times, you know. And that that's what they're 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 working with. And you know they needed players putting the body on the line and getting blocks in. And Salisu I think was pretty good as well, kind of clearing clearing uh, chances in the box. So I think they will still be in and around it. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised to see them finish kind of sixteenth at the end of the season and. The Ralph Reign continues. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Crystal Palace are next. They win again, coming from behind to win. Like all of their Premier League wins so far this season, this time it was against Wolves at Selhurst Park. There is a good feeling with Crystal Palace at the moment. The fans very, very happy. How much, Gregor, do you feel like they are improving or do you feel like they've taken a step forward at all given how well they played last season under Vieira this time around? They took a big step forward last season. You know, we spoke about that. It was brave. Lots of, you know, young players, new signings, um, a big clear out. 
and you know they had a very difficult pre-season you know they had a split summer uh, where some of their players were going away um, on, on, on tour and some didn't some stayed, some stayed at home I absolutely think they're 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 taking step, steps forward. Um I think that part of that is because there's going to be kind of ongoing development of some of their most exciting players. Olise is I honestly think he could be like an absolute star. Like Champions League level footballer if he really wants to be. He's an incredible player. The way he, he always kind of he, he glides around the pitch the way he cut inside and put that cross to the back post that he just does that non-stop, non-stop, non-stop throughout the game. And if he if he wants to as well, he cut inside. And if the fullback's seen that happen so many times, tries to block it, he'll cut down the line and dink it to the back post. So he's right foot. He's, he is, would be a nightmare to play against. We've seen Zaha. It's interesting reading Molly's piece actually after this after this game about him talking to the young players. He's kind of laughing, saying, "I'm talking to 19, 20 year olds now, but I'm talking to them about efficiency." He just kept using that word. It's like you know, we saw him do some that brilliant little kind of flourish where he. Did like a step over and then cut inside, didn't he? It was magic. And like you, know, you didn't think that's a word that he's going to use too much efficiency. But he's saying to them, it's not all about showboat. You know, we want to enjoy ourselves in the pitch, but you've got to be effective as well. You've got to try and get goals and get assists. And you know, Zaha's getting goals. That's good that they've got a player like him that's kind of imprinting that upon them. Because when you think about Eze and you think about Olise, um and Zaha, really, until kind of more recently, what you think about is these kind of guys from South London who look like they go out and have a great time every time they go out and play on the pitch. And they like, they try things. They want to make football fun. And, you know, it's important they don't lose that. But at the same time, if they get the numbers and they're scoring goals and creating chances, Crystal Palace have got a good future because I honestly think Eze, Olise, Zaha, behind a striker, there are not many better kind of forward lines than that in the Premier League. Um, I'll, I'll pick up on that Zaha focus on efficiency. Um, I said he only needs to dribble now when he has to in the right areas, but also more of an emphasis on scoring. I think there's only four players who've scored more goals in the Premier League in 2022 than, than Wilfred Zaha. Is it right that we talk about him as one of the best attacking talents in the league? I think let's see how this season goes in light of what he's asking himself for and I'm sure what Vieira's asking, himself, asking him for in terms of goals. But it come, Vieira deserves the credit for this, doesn't he? Because Zaha was the kind of the one figurehead in the Roy Hodgson Palace team, which, you know, as a man fan of pragmatism, I had no issue with that. He kept them in the Premier League and probably set up the Palace to be, to be the Palace that they are now by being that kind of dogged and resolute and not getting relegated. But he was, you know, let's give it to Wilf and see what happens, which is why he had to do so many dribbles. Now he's got Elise, now he's got Eze, now he's got Eduardo, who I think is a pretty good player as well. And it feels like an attacking unit now. And you could see that from the goals. Um, you know, Zaha playing the ball wide to Elise for the cross for Eze. Similarly, players linking up for um, Zaha's goal. Eze playing a lovely pass into Edward, I think, who then knocked it back to Zaha. You know, this is an attacking unit now. And that's what Vieira has done. And they're, they're, they're brilliant to watch. I, I would say I was speaking to a colleague of mine who's a Palace season ticket holder. And he says the next thing they need to do is to get another midfielder inside along Decore. Because they've moved Eze into this, you know, central role, which I think is a fascinating thing when you think of players like, you know, Alex Awobi as well, you know, players that are seen as attackers, you know, and maybe five years ago they'd have stuck them on the wing. You're like, oh, you've got skills, you've got a turn of pace and you might going to score. Stick you out on the wing and actually bring them into a central area. And um, my colleague was saying... Schlupp as well. Schlupp's kind of an auxiliary midfielder. Exactly, yeah. But it's whether you're getting more out of these players who've got so much class. Like, I mean, you know, 
Greg is the founding member of the Michael Elise fan club. I'm going to definitely stake a claim for the Eze one, and we can both go to Palace games with our shirts on and have a lovely time. He's just absolutely superb, isn't he? Yeah. You do wonder where he'd be at if he hadn't got that injury. But again, coming back to the point, putting him in that central area, as Vieira has done, yes, you lose a bit of defensive now, so he probably loses his man quite a lot of the time in terms of runs off him over his shoulder. But you've got a player in a central area, rather than having pinned to the touchline, who can create play passes, spring attacks, link with Zaha. And again, it's my favourite stat of the podcast today, but I was looking at average position maps. And Zaha, Eze and Edward are very close together in terms of their touches on the pitch. And then Elise is like pinned to the to the flank because he does what Gregor does, which it says and glides and puts crosses into the box. And then you've got Eze and Zaha linking. It's fantastic to watch, but in terms of Zaha going to that next level, he needs to score goals. But the others will help him do that. They're one of the most interesting clubs in the Premier League for me because they're somehow in this kind of global behemoth product. They have something really kind of local about them. And, you know, they've not always players that have come through their own academy. And, you know, Tyrant Mitchell was released by Brentford, came in. He, he, asked, I've said before, and I think he's one of the best 1v1 defenders in the league. You know, they got Elise for Reading for a bargain, 8 million, I think it was. Eze from, from, from QPR. Zaha, they're all, they're all from South London. They're all from, and so is Gay. You know, he came from Chelsea. But it, it, that's not a coincidence, I don't think. I think they see players, they think he's someone who, who will fit in here. You know, that, there is something about that local kind of spirit, I think, that's pretty pretty, pretty impressive, really. In terms uh, of like... To maintain in the Premier League, I mean. Yeah, in terms of that, like, that kind of thinking of local spirit and also what Greg is alluding to there is, you know, like everyone's favourite other team, aren't they? Like we talk as journalists and as pundits and then also as fans about other teams that we like to watch. And, you know, the, t- the table will change during the season, but it's fascinating to see that Brighton, Brentford and Palace are next to each other in the table below the kind of top seven of which Newcastle are trying to break into. Then you have lots of bigger clubs, bigger traditional clubs, Forest, Villa, lower down the table behind them. You've got these three, almost, you know, the hipsters clubs. Do it right, attach to the local community, bringing young players through, have a clear way of playing and have a lot of exciting talent to watch as well. Good academy. Yeah. And Malcolm uh, Ebioli is another one that came from Derby County. Mm. He's he's from South London. Uh, You know, the... Henry did a great piece of uh, maybe about six weeks ago now. Mm. Speak, you know, doing speaking to Steve Parrish, going into the academy. Obviously, there's a documentary going on as well. You know, it's definitely a part of their strategy. They want to be the, the kind of roots in the soil is very important to them, and reflecting, you know, the community around them. I I just think that's really important in a club, and it's very impressive to maintain that in the Premier League. Being from London, I mean, I say this a lot about two clubs in particular, to be honest, West Ham and Spurs, and their lack of bringing players through who you would imagine, you know, given their where they are in the fan bases and the support and the number of young kids that must dream of playing for those two clubs, the fact that they... Harry Kane's one of their own, though. Don't forget that. Yeah, OK, very good. I, I, mean, I mean, two clubs that can't spend the big money who... Uh, again, maybe you could say it's about every club in the Premier League, but I think there are some clubs who don't need to have a great academy because they've got the money to buy whoever they want. But I think for Spurs, for example, you talked about their bench earlier on. These clubs should be producing very good, high-standard players yeah. with the money and the coaches that they have to be able to look at that bench and say, we've got four or five players that maybe came out. There. I mean, Chelsea started with five academy players. Granted, I know they're one of the teams that doesn't need academy players, but... The fact that Crystal Palace, this is my point, when it comes to Spurs and West Ham, 
you know, have these players who not all of them came through their academy. They've managed to purchase them from the EFL, but they fit with the, if you like, the culture at the club. You know, you look at Tottenham, you think, where are these players? Mm. Like, I don't get it. And when West Ham United were looking for a new striker and they had those issues with um, Antonio's fitness, you were like, surely there's a striker at West Ham United mm. in the academy bangs in goals every week. I mean, you're in you're a London club. Like, how hard is it to find a goal scorer in East or South London? Come on, do me a favour. Like I, That disappoints me, but it's also to the credit of Crystal Palace. The other thing about Palace is that there's probably 20, 25 clubs of their size that aren't doing what they're doing. They're, they aren't, they aren't, they're, they're punching above their weight. Yes, they've had, what, a decade in the Premier League now, but you look below in the Championship, they're no bigger than, than most of the clubs in the Championship. So, you know, to maintain that and do it so well, and they're doing it, they've done it in different ways, but now they're doing it with a, a, a bit more of a sustainable view. And, you know, they brought in, like, Sean, Sean Derry came up from the academy too. There is a link, absolutely, is a link, a link between the academy and the local kind of, the local community and what you're seeing on the pitch. Palace fans must be absolutely loving it. Um, those three players, honestly, it's going to be hard to keep them. Elise, Eze, if he continues like this, even beyond this summer. So again, they're going to have to do this Oh once yeah, but again. They'll, they'll sell them for 40, 30, 50 <laughs> yeah, million and yeah. then go back to the championship and find some more or reinvest in their academy. The strange thing is, you know, there are still questions about Zaha. Where's he going to be? Is he going to be mm. a top six club? Should he be at Tottenham? You know, and et cetera, et cetera, in the last couple of weeks, which I do find sort of, incredible because he's a club legend mm. I'm sure they're paying well at Crystal Palace he's been there for a long time like, why would they ever really sell him well yeah qu- quite and I think you know similar to kind of Harry Kane in terms of you maybe missed your chance to move I know Zaha did move and then came back but that's another thing my colleague says as much you know he absolutely loves Wilfred Zaha obviously of course he does but as a as a journalist and a fan he's often said I would have loved to have seen whether Wilf could do it at a top six club and I think you think about the conversation we're having around the idea that he's now playing with players of a similar kind of standard in terms of technical ability, as a Elise and others, and going, oh God, he can score goals now, he can get into central areas, and what if he could have done it? So maybe after this season, they could be in an awful position of having young players <laughs> who are being targeted, and Zaha might have got 10 to 15 goals, and some big cl- clubs will be thinking, oh man, he can actually do it's it. It's the final year of Wilfred Zaha's contract, so be the Crystal Palace Paying more than oh, let's ever, not end London. Let's ever, not end like this. <laughs> ever paid one of their players? Their or... fans will be listening, thinking they've finally done some Palace love, and now we're telling them they're all their players. <laughs> I are mean, he's leave. a great free, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He would be superb. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry, Palace fans. We'll move <laughs> yeah. on very, very swiftly. Uh, let's start with Liverpool next. They won again, so that's important for them. They play Nottingham Forest at the weekend, eyeing a nine-point week. Uh, Darwin Nunez got the winner as they came past West Ham at Anfield in midweek. Jared Bowen missing a first-half penalty saved by Alisson. Since the start of the 2021 season, no side has missed more Premier League penalties than West Ham. Six in all, including two of their three so far this season. That's an issue for them. Generally speaking, if you don't score that many goals, missing penalties is an even bigger problem. Only nine goals scored so far in the Premier League for West Ham and only four teams, as we speak, have scored fewer. That's despite their shiny new striker, Gianluca Scamacca. So what's the issue? There's a myriad of things to talk about and you kind of touched on some of them there. Doesn't help when Virgil van Dijk does a little bit of scuffing uh, pitch work on the penalty spot, I'm sure. But no, that doesn't probably excuse Jared Bowen missing the penalty. I think when you think about penalties and West Ham missing those chances, Declan Rice used to take them, you know, a kind of defender converted into a midfielder. And, you know, look, people can take penalties from all over the pitch, but 
There's still that idea of, you know, Harry Kane stepping up to take a penalty. I know he's missed a few of late, but generally you're like, this is going in the top corner. West Ham don't have that kind of striker and in turn don't have that kind of penalty taker. So that that's an issue. Whether Scamacho will come good will take time because he's adapting to a new league. He's got a manager who perhaps isn't fully confident in just kind of throwing him in and backing him by putting players around him because that's another thing, I think, too, in terms of creating chances. Again, I was looking at the stats this morning. West Ham have had 19 what optical big chances this season, which is defined as kind of a one-on-one or a clear shot on goal. You think of that kind of ball falling to Suchek in the second half just before Milner gets a toe in. They've had 19, which is about mid-table in terms of those chances. So, you know, they're not creating as many as other teams. They're about mid-table for you know having these big kind of chances. But then when you break those 19 chances down they've only scored five and they've missed 14 of them. So in turn, it's then the players that are getting those bigger chances. Maybe it's not a Scamacha, maybe it's a Suchek or a or a Bowen, who, as brilliant as he's been, isn't, I would say, a kind of definitive top-class finisher. He's a great dribbler. He's a good creative player. He's so, a goal scorer too. But I, I know what you're saying. He's, he's, not, not, he's, he's not an elite you know, kind He's of not your scorer, elite yeah. finisher. Put him in one-on-one, you're not like, this is going in the bottom corner. And, and that's not a criticism of Jared Bowen. I'm talking, you know, in a holistic sense about West Ham and their scoring problems. So there's a myriad of issues going on. I think what they need to perhaps do is give Scamatra a run and give him a run in the side with players around him, whether it's Bowen, whether it's Ben Rama, who can help create chances for him. You know, you mentioned Liverpool and Nunez there. We've talked about them giving him some confidence and that was by Klopp playing a way that's going to suit him and getting, like, the goal comes from, you know, him getting in the box and Simicas putting in a delicious cross for him to attack and he gets a goal and he's feeling like a king again and we've all forgotten about Joachim Anderson and the red card. That'll do him the world of good. Moyes perhaps needs to do that with Scamacha and West Ham in terms of going forward. Uh, yeah, I'm not worried if I'm a West Ham fan. Like, look, Scam- on the goal score in front, Scamacha has to come good. We knew that as soon as he signed and West Ham have had some serious issues with number nines over the years. Um I think he he is starting to get that run of games. He had, I think he I think he had a virus when he came. He wasn't starting initially, but then there was a period like I think I I did one of the European games the other week and he scored four in his last six. So he done you know he had started to he's got his first couple in the Premier League. You could see him kind of visibly grow in confidence. They're playing against Liverpool here, and they they played well. Yeah. It wouldn't have been wrong. Er, Erling Haaland didn't score against Liverpool at Anfield. To be fair to West Ham, yeah, it wouldn't have been like a, a daylight robbery to see them come away with a point yesterday at all. They, they played well. I think they had better higher XG than Liverpool after the game. I think it's still only their second defeat in nine games in all competitions. I've, I've covered a fair bit of them in Europe and, and yeah, look, they're playing in the third tier of European competition, but they've they've been they've been dangerous when they've had the best players on the pitch. And they, Paqueta's injury is a blow because he was starting to form a good relationship with, with Scamacha. There was evidence of that. Bowen, to sort of defend them slightly, has been absolutely electric in Europe for them. So I think... I wouldn't be worried if I was a West Ham fan. I think that they will be among, you know, challenging for the best of the rest come the end of the season. Which is where eighth, seventh, eighth, seventh, eighth. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All I'd right. say. Eight. I think. I think at the moment, you know, they, they'll have bigger ambitions in the future. But at the moment, that's they, they should be happy. I'll be honest. As long as they're playing Thursday nights, I think they're going to find it tough. Mm. Like I, he, I do. To think be fair, he's made eight or nine changes every single week, and because yeah. they've got a, they have got a much improved squad. He signed. Eight players at a cost of 160 million. Or I know, but I, that disrupts your rhythm. Like that disrupts you gelling together as a side, getting that fluent style of football that you, you firstly you don't get that extra training time on 
Thursday and Friday it's because true. you're traveling, you're getting back late. Yeah, you pick your team for the weekend. It's probably your full strength team, but how much training have they had together? Like high quality training. And I do think a Thursday night is a drain. You know, uh, they're not going to get in the top four at, at this current moment. So I think they're going to either have to have a big squad, like a, a European squad and a, a Premier League squad in the future and change the way that the club works. Otherwise, and I don't think they will because I don't think they've got the money to do that. Or that I don't think they would want to do that either. But what I mean is, if they go into all these games with the same squad as most clubs do, at this point in time, they will find it hard. I think that can be okay, though. We've talked about them at the start of the season and how Moyes have done brilliantly to kind of keep essentially the same blueprint, the same players, roughly, with the odd, you know, added bit of talent here and there. This was the big summer where they made the big signings, like Scamacha. As you say, Hugh, that's going to be disruptive. And they've got Thursday nights. You do wonder whether this might be a season of a bit of flux and a bit of transition in terms of, and we might not be until kind of March where we'll see them hitting their stride, but it might mean that the, rather than being around the top six, as they have been punching way above their weight, that they're replaced in that conversation by Newcastle, who are doing incredibly well, and West Ham are maybe around 8th, ninth, 10th. And But I think West Ham fans, I think I can speak for West Ham fans, are saying that after all the turbulent seasons they've had, they won't mind that. They won't mind that at all. No, I mean, they were edgy at the start of the season because yeah. they started really poorly as well. We can't forget that. But West Ham's aim now is to be in Europe every season. And then what will follow from that is having a squad that's capable of competing on two fronts. And they made a big step towards that in the summer, as I say, with signing eight players um, and some of them big players. And, you know, I think they've got some new investment and possibly a takeover on the horizon eventually. Uh, so West Ham should be aiming higher than that, but at the moment, that's a good place to be. All right, gentlemen, we've got through the, the midweek games. Um, I think the actual podcast discussing them was more entertaining than the actual football, but there you go. <laughs> uh, listen, plenty still to come. Up next, we'll be talking to Martin Ziegler as the European Super League comes back onto the horizon. And a little bit later on, we'll be picking our five outside chance players to get into Gareth Southgate's World Cup squad. Stay with us for that. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility, there's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
well, to the surprise of absolutely no one, uh, the European Super League is back. It haunts us, doesn't it? New plans to relaunch the ESL within three years have been revealed uh, because of fears that English clubs have become too dominant. There's a new dossier outlining a revived competition and it's warned that the Premier League is leaving its continental rivals behind. Martin Ziegler has written about this in The Times. The chief sports reporter uh, joins us once again on the game. Hi, Martin. Hi, how are you doing, Keith? I'm okay, uh, but all those football fans that dread the idea of the European Super League will be sweating once again. What's the latest development? Yeah, so, I mean, this is definitely sort of revving up for a new attempt at launching a Super League. Um, the company, the sports management company behind it, A22, has appointed a new chief executive, a German media guy. Um, Real Madrid, Juventus and Barcelona have been speaking fairly um, outspokenly about you know, why they think they need it. And it's all building up to a court case in the European Court of Justice, which we should find the result of in December. Well, I, I guess it's a silly question to say, why are they so threatened by the Premier League? Because we know the size of the Premier League. Um, but is that a fair comment? Because we know that there are clubs on the continent that have basically massively overspent. Is it the case that they have overspent trying to keep up with Premier League clubs or is it all of their own doing? Well, that's what they're claiming. Um, I mean, if you I mean, look at the fact Real Madrid have won five out of the last 10 Champions League titles. I mean, they're, they're worried that they're not going to maintain their position at the top of the tree, I think. Um, and the others are the same. It's whether uh, this thing about what, you know, should... Should something be brought in to maintain the um, you know, the, the permanent position of, of clubs like that who've been around for the last 50 years or whatever, um, which Real Madrid have? Or you know, should there should be a free market? Um, should the, you know, the, the strongest win and the British clubs be allowed to sort of dominate entirely? Um, I mean, I'm sure the, the English clubs think yes we should because people like what what we do and you know therefore we should be rewarded for it and but at the same time you know the the, the big six clubs will you know, there, there is their owners a lot of them will be thinking we want to try and make as much money as possible because we're in this for investment we're not we're not in it for anything else there is new leadership at the european super league as well will that make a difference have they struck a different tone do you think the different tone they're trying to strike is is, is not making it a closed shop so the previous one is very very much a sort of you're invited into this, and we're going to, you know, we're going to, we might have a few sort of guest clubs every year, but basically, you're the founder members. You're in it for good. What they're now saying is that this this is going to be an open format. It's going to be the same sort of process as getting into the Champions League is at the moment, but it'll be controlled by the clubs and not by UEFA. That's what their argument is. And I think we have to like look back at the previous models. Which shows that, for example, things like Real Madrid and Barcelona were because they had been the sort of come up with the, the concept, they were getting an additional ten million euros a year just the fact because it was their idea. So I mean, I think they're sort of fairly 
blatant reasons why they want it, um, which which came out then. And so one has to look at look at this idea of a of a new, a new format through that lens, I think, because and try and work out exactly what the the end game is. Just finally on this, that the court case, it's going to be huge, not just for the European Super League, but the future of of sport. Well, really, the future of football, but I guess it will have a, a rippling effect. Um, do those that run the European Super League, are, are they confident that things will go their way? Any indication? I don't think they're confident necessarily, but I don't think they're sort of, think they're, you know, staring defeat in the face either. I think they think it's quite sort of open. Um, and in a couple of legal brains I've spoken to think there's gonna, there may be some sort of a halfway house where, UEFA have to sort of take a step back and perhaps give more power to the European Club Association um, rather than this sort of commercial sports management company, which, I mean, I don't know why it should have any particular sort of um, position. You know, why why should A22 and these three clubs have any um, special position in organising a football competition? Shouldn't it really be the... If it's going to be anybody, it should be the European Club Association. Okay, all right, Martin Ziegler, thank you for joining us uh, on the game podcast once again. Uh, From a service station in Wakefield, by the way, we should say Martin's been on the road. (laughs) So thank you for taking the time uh, out from your day to to join us and give us that update. Appreciate it. Very good. Cheers. We're talking to you on Thursday morning. So as we speak, tomorrow, Gareth Southgate will submit England's provisional World Cup squad with. Uh, it's reported in the Times, Crystal Palace's Eberichi Eze expected to be included. Well, he should be. Um, but the list contains up to 55 names. So actually, it's like... 55? Who, who is getting left out at this point in time? But <laughs> where anyway... You, where are you pitching to play, Hugh? I could see you as like a holding <laughs> midfielder, maybe. I'd get you in. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely a holding midfielder. Yeah, yeah. Two guys, styly. Um <laughs> The list contains, as I say, up to 55 names. It will be trimmed by more than half to a final 26-man party, which will be announced on November the 10th. But at this point in time, we know as it's going to be 55, there are going to be some names that raise eyebrows on this list. Well, it's not going to be 55. That's the maximum. We don't know what he's going to pick. We'll see exactly What's what he What's the purpose of this, quickly? Is you can pick to 35 to 55, and the purpose of this is to prepare clubs and players for the potential of going to the World Cup with all the injuries and stuff that will come on the horizon because there is only an eight-day gap between the end of the Premier League and the start of the World Cup. So basically anyone who could be on the plane needs to be prepared, i.e. cancelling your holidays, getting things ready, flights, whatever okay, it might okay. be. So it's to prepare all the football associations so that there's no delay. It's about admin. Exactly. If there's Because if there's an injury on the final weekend of the Premier League, whether you're in that 26, you need to be ready to go the next morning because there is now there's no three week gap. Okay. There's only eight okay. days, right? Thanks. So, for so, so that's it, right? Um, Someone's read the rule book. Yeah. I, I did. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's for the sticker books as well, isn't it? So they can get the stickers, <laughs> stickers ready and printed. I do think 55 is a lot. Like 35 into 26 is probably going to be okay. I don't know what kind of tackles they're expecting on the final weekend uh, of the leagues. But anyway, it would be fascinating to know who like was 55th. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think it could be your call here. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting getting ahead. Of well, listen, we're not we're not quite going to be picking fifty fifth. What we thought was we'd give five outside chance names that we would like as a group to be included on this list tomorrow. Okay, we we might not think they're going to be on the list, but we want them to be on the list essentially. And hopefully, Gareth, you're listening. 
gentlemen, I've written, I've taken out my pen and paper because I think there's going to be lots of scribbling going on here. There are some players that I did want to discuss, and I'm going to start with a with one that you won't like. But Dan Byrne of Newcastle United needs to be on this list. He needs to be. Why? Firstly, left-footed. Okay. Secondly, incredibly tall, good in the air. Okay. Thirdly, Harry Maguire is pish. And <laughs> if you want someone who can replace the influence of Maguire in the back three, left-sided, he's probably better than Tyrone Mings right now as well, it's him. Am I, mean, I wrong? I mean, I'm tempted to give it you just for your explanation to Gregor as to why there are so many names on the list because I found that particularly convincing and impressive. I'd give you it for the word, using the word pish as well. Pish, yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a big Scottish influence going on on this podcast. Look, I'm not against it. I would have someone like Tarkovsky ahead of Dan Byrne um, in terms of experience. Hey? Ben me. Ben me, yeah. Are they on your list? Are, they, are you proposing them? Well, no, I just need, added them, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, throw them in. If there's 55, we need to, we need to get the numbers <laughs> ben up. Ben me must be on I'm writing them down right now, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got another... I'm not, look, I'm not against Dan Byrne. I, I would have other central defenders ahead of him on the list, including a man who is 32, six foot four, over 200 appearances in the Premier League, over 50 appearances in Serie A, over 30 England caps. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Smalling. Not only get him in the 55, <laughs> get him in the 35, get him in the 26, get him on the plane. Chris Smalling. Come on. Come on. You, you're on a wind-up. I just want I'm not on a wind-up. You're picking players. I think we always come at this, we talk about it, and we talk about it in the office all the time, editing, commissioning, and we talk about England bolters as well, which I always find a funny face because it's never used in the footballing context in any other sense other than an idea of a player going to break into an international squad. Why can't you have a player who's gone away from the international scene and come back improved like as a player, clearly doing well in Serie A, lots of rave reviews. Also saw him giving an interview in Italian the other day. I mean, that was extraordinary. Absolutely brilliant. Never saw him do a half-decent interview in English, bless him. Um, no, that's slightly me. <laughs> um, but look, I, listen, I've got, I've got personal with uh, Chris, Chris Smalling because once when I was at another newspaper, um, I was speaking to some colleagues and I wasn't working and I would watch Manchester United in the Champions League. And I asked, like, oh, who's, who's, who's been picked out as the man of the match? And it wasn't Chris Smalling. And I angrily texted and emailed my colleagues at the desk and said, Chris Smalling at least 8.5. And so when I left that particular newspaper, they got me a Manchester United shirt with Smalling 8.5 on the back of it. <laughs> so I should declare a bit of um, added interest. But I, I genuinely mean it. I always think we come at this from a point of view of young players, you know, your Theo Walcott, your, your Eberichi Eze's. Why can't a guy with loads of experience be included? Well, he's not got loads of experience, but same sort of theme I would say Loftus-Cheek I think really? he's playing playing regularly now he's very kind of flexible he can play in midfield in a three he can play he's even played kind of as a holding midfielder for Chelsea under Potter and he's and played, a wing back, and he's played yeah. as a wing back so you know from a, a kind of you know a, a sure a sure fit of uh, of right backs you've suddenly they're dropping like flies and, and following that one I'll say James Justin he endured an awful, awful debut, which was very unlike him. He's never like he's he's a very kind of steady seven or eight out of ten kind of. Has player. he been good this season? He's been he has been good. He's been a bad team. Gregor loves James. Justin. I do almost as much him. as Michael Elise. It's, it's a tough close. call. It's, it's close. It's close. But <laughs> okay. he's second. Okay. Behind Elise. <laughs> but I think Justin. I think I think absolutely he's got an England future. Staying with Leicester, if James Madison is not included. In, if it's like if he's not 35, 55, even if it's why. like 35, <laughs> even, even if it's 35, if he's not on it, I mean, that's, that's going to be a big headline. 
And that will certainly boil down to personality over his footballing ability because he's been great this season. One of the, the few positives for Leicester City so far. There's an argument he needs to be on the plane in the final 26. But for me, in terms of the outside chances, I'm not even giving you guys a vote on this. He's one of our five. That's fine. That's <laughs> okay. fine. I'm not. I'm not. Taking, I'm writing I'm it not, in capital letters. I'm not taking him on the 26, but he can be in the 55. I'm taking Chris Smalling instead. Jared Bowen. I'm throwing him in as well. I agree with you on I that. I think he like he always affects the game. He always has a big influence on a game. And yes, you know, obviously he just missed the penalty. Um, but he's starting to find real form as well after a, a difficult end of last season. Um, you know, part of a team that was struggling at the start of the season. As I say, I've watched quite a lot of them recently and he's been brilliant. He really does affect every single game. A fit and firing Callum Wilson. Talk to me. Yeah, not against that. The key, we, we the can key, only, the key, there can the only key, be five, Tom, okay? The key, there can only the be key, five. The key, as long as Chris Smalling's on there, you two can pick <laughs> the other two. I'm not that bothered. The, the key word to what you're saying is that it's, it's fit because, as, as we all know, any player, but particularly a striker, has to be fit to, in turn, be firing. And those two things go hand in hand. I'm not necessarily sure that can be guaranteed when a tight fixture schedule going into the Winter World Cup. I would say the other thing, the other argument for players like not just Smalling, but, but even for Dan Byrne, as you said, Hugh, that's why you went with him at the top, is that it's a weak position for England centre-back. Mm. Um, increasingly so, not just because of Harry Maguire's pish form, but also because of you know some injuries and things um, to Manchester City players. But that's why I would stake the claim for Tarkovsky and even Connor Cody, who are, we know Gareth Southgate likes. He was part of the kind of Cody will be in it. Co- yeah. Cody's not. I'm not I even putting him on the list for an outside chance. No, but so. I'm I'm linking him to Tarkovsky because they play. They've I been see. playing well with Everton this season, and you know they've suddenly become turned Frank Lampard's side into teams that concede goals into ones that keep clean sheets. So I'd have Tarkovsky in there as well. We got sort of a microcosm of Joe Gomez's career in the last two games, from the sublime yeah. to the pretty much ridiculous giving away that penalty last night. But if Carl Walker isn't there. I'm just going to say this right side of a three. Yeah. Well, that's why I think ability like, to play like, right back. Like with Cody, Quick. though, I think he'd be in. Though I don't think we need to factor him. No in. way. Yeah, I Joe think Gomez so. hasn't been picked for England for ages. No, but I think that's partly injury related. And as you say, it's a big South, thing though. He's not played much football. I I think he'd be. I think he's more of a kind of. No, I mean, I'd be until, amazed until, if he would be in the final twenty-six. Until amazed. last week, the win against City, there was, we would have sat here and said no chance. He wouldn't even be in being a bolter. Mm. But that was his first really good game. He would had some howlers. He played well against Rangers. He did well against Rangers, right back. Yeah. But Array, was, Rangers, come <laughs> on. But no, I think that was a big game. It was one big game. All and, right, and and uh, yeah, it was a it was just a penalty against Bowen. Fine. Um, Are we picking a five then? Right, go on. Well, listen, I just wanted to quickly. Yes or no's to a few players. So Ollie Watkins? No. No. Wow. It's in your five, yeah? You're not yeah, not, I'm, not Patrick Bamford? Not in the players. No I'd chance. have Bamford over Watkins, but probably not for the No five. chance. I think actually we'll look back at Patrick Bamford and think, how has he had an England cap? Disagree, but anyway. I don't mean that like in, uh, I know what players sounds derogatory, but <laughs> I think he's someone who's had... Brutal, actually. He's someone, yeah, no, no, he's, someone, he's someone who rode the wave, Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds United. And I think... <laughs> I don't. I think he's a kind of just about a Premier League striker. I'm just I'm throwing sure this he's in never there. Never been an England striker. I'm just throwing this in there because I think it should be one of our five. Rico Henry of Brentford. Yeah, left back. N- not yeah. against that. Not against that. Yes. I mean, we can debate yes. for the five, but I think he could. Yeah, he could be. Well, I'm asking you in yeah, the yeah. five. I th- hmm. This is a difficult one. It is a difficult one, right? Okay. See, I think we should. But I think if we do, you know, let me put my Gareth hat on. You know, let's pick pragmatic and pick. 
problem positions and it's going to be defensive. So that's why I think you can make the case for Rico Henry being in there because if Ben Chilwell got injured again, as he has done in his career so far. Like it's through an Aaron Criswell there. And if Luke, yeah, Ooh, could do. Cheeky. Criswell could, over Henry. Good, good set piece taker. He's been there before, hasn't he? Not as quick though. Experienced. Yeah. Nah, I'm taking Rico Henry. Right, you can have Rico Henry. In fact, you can both have two each. I'm having Chris Smalling. That's all I want. <laughs> Rico Henry. Are we allowing him to have Chris Smalling? <laughs> Rico, Rico. It's, it's all about the art. Come on. Rico know, Henry's there. Joe Gomez is there for me. James Madison is there for me. Well, you've had three then. Loftus Cheek, you said? Yes. Loftus Cheek. You have okay. you having Madison over Bowen. Wait, hold on. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to get to my fight my short list. This is my long list for my short list, okay? I, Henry Gomez, Madison, Loftus Cheek. You said Smalling. That's all. Smalling. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. And then, <laughs> should there be a striker on it? Nah. There shouldn't fine. be any striker. Sure? Wilson's not a bad shoot. Wilson. It's not a bad shoot. Well, I'll tell you what. Then let's. It's a five. So let's pick a five-a-side team, but without a goalkeeper. So you have Wilson, have Madison. Have- he, then, listen, we've got six names. Rico Henry, Joe Gomez, James Madison, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Chris Smalling, and Callum Wilson. And I think all of the listeners know the name that shouldn't be on there is is Chris Smalling. So let's, for you, Tom, we'll make it a six. Okay, all right. Thank you guys for listening. He's in the bed. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I appreciate you, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson there. Thank you to Martin Ziegler as well. Remember, if you want more of our award-winning journalism to check out all the reaction to Gareth Southgate as well, if you're uh, listening on Friday, go to the Times app. Make sure you download it wherever you get uh, your apps from and also if you want to subscribe go online it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you on Monday as you're listening to me Daisy Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.